You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. Two weeks ago, we began a study in Philippians, and we're looking at Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi. And we have seen last week, we were reminded of some very important things that, that God is worthy of our confidence. So Paul puts all of his confidence in God, and we talked about that he is confident in, in, in God's commitment, God's ability, God's ambition to finish what he started and what he began. And we celebrated that together, and I hope that you were able to go to a small group this week and talk that out and at least try to unpack that. Like, what does that mean for my everyday life? And and uh, I pray that you'll have that same opportunity, you'll take that same opportunity this week to get connected into a community group where you can unpack the stuff that you're about to pack in to your memory right now, the things that we're about to write about and think about. I want to pray. I know we just prayed, but I want to pray, and I want to just be honest with you. Here's what I'm praying for, that if there be anybody in this room today that does not see Christ as a treasure, you just treasure other things. You've been holding on to other things. You've been valuing other things more. I pray that today that God would just, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, that you just trade it out like Christ. No, you're here, not all these other things. You're here. And that if there's anybody lost, that, that they'd be saved today. And I also am praying, and I'll just tell you this is what I've been praying all week and specifically today, that for those who already know Christ as treasure, that like Paul, maybe today, you would see that it's time to go all out that you just get rid of everything and you just say, I'm going, I'm going wherever God wants me to go. It could be just next door, it could be to Asia, that you would say today, today's the day. I'm saying yes to that call that God's put in my heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you reign, you are good, you are king, you are Lord, you're amazing. Your grace pours out over us. And this letter that we read from your servant, Paul, that you put in prison rings forth a joy that we long for. And I pray, God, if there be anybody here that's been seeking joy, holding on to joy in temporary things, that, Lord, they would avoid that trap. If there's anybody here, Lord, that you're wanting to move and get going and go to another continent, go to another neighborhood, go to another place, go across the street, however and wherever you want them to go, I pray that they'd be convinced that you're worth it and that they would take their faith public. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So Paul begins the letter in a, in a typical way, and after starting his letter like most People start their letters with a kind of, hey, I'm praying for you guys. I hope everything is going well, kind of an introduction. He gives his, here's why I have confidence in, for you. Here's why I have confidence in what God's doing. And that was last week, the last two weeks we saw that. Paul does next what's common with letters, especially one like this that's sort of like a mission report. Paul's reporting back, here's what's happening, here's what's going on. I'm writing you a letter to keep you updated. It's like he's saying, okay, friends, here's an update on my end. 
You sent somebody to me and you told me all the things that's going on on your end. I applaud what God's doing. I'm excited about that. But now it's time for me just to share briefly. Here's what's happening here. And therefore, he begins with highlighting several things that's going on. And so we're going to talk today, and we're going to begin today, highlighting Paul's highlights. We're going to look at several things that we just want to be aware of. This is what it means when Paul's writing this and that. And then we're going to spend most of our time looking at this text and noticing traps that Paul has avoided. Traps that catch us, traps that keep us from doing all that God's called us to do. What we're going to hear in this report is simply that the gospel is advancing. And we're going to notice those traps that Paul's avoided so that the gospel continues to advance. Basically, he's saying our work is progressing. In verse 12, we see what has happened with Paul. He tells us right away, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. Now, don't get hung up on the brothers. Another translation may say brethren. We know that he's writing this to the entire congregation, to all the saints that are in Philippi. He wrote that, and we see that in verse 1. So brethren, people, congregants, I want you to know what has happened to me, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul has been arrested for preaching and doing what God told him to do. God told him to do what he was doing, and the result meant that he was now in chains. His plan to evangelize and to keep going, to encourage the churches, to raise up new leaders, and to advance the gospel has stopped for a moment. He is, however, now in chains to a wall in Rome, stuck, immobile, not fulfilling the strategic plan that he was sent out to do by a group of people that used to pray and or sorry, not that were praying, that were holding together and pray, and they launched Paul and his team out to go do this mission, and he finds himself stuck. And so right away, verse 12, he doesn't hide from that. He says, I know what you sent me to do, so I want you to know that the gospel has not stopped. He's stating the obvious. He's saying, hey, guys, I've been caught. You know I've been caught. I'm immobile now, but God is still working. He goes on to say in later part of verse 12 through 14, we notice that Paul is still planting the gospel. Look with me in verse 12. He says, I want you to know what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known Throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And sort of a because of that, verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is not interested in planting something different, innovative, culturally relevant. Think about it. He's not trying to build the mega, cool, ultra-attractive congregation here. As you can hear from this, 
he is not discouraged. He's not angling for a prominent career as evangelist or book deals or social media following here. Nope. He's simply and decisively planting seeds of the gospel message. It's real, it's beautiful, and it's costly. Because his motive is not to be a famous church planting pastor or anything else like that, the other people that normally would be ignored are getting the gospel. People that would have never received the gospel are hearing it. And so as many times as I read through this, and as many times as I prayed, my family has prayed about planting churches. That's good. Paul was still planting churches. But what matters most is planting the gospel. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's telling them. It's not about planting churches and building this up and becoming famous. It's about the gospel is now taking seed here. Wasn't my plan. It was supposed to be over here, but this is where we are, and this is what's happening. Because of this, he recognizes that some people have become strong partners with him. Verse 14, he talks about those who've been encouraged to speak the word more boldly. And then in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and robbery, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put in here for the defense of the gospel. He's recognizing clearly that he has emboldened people with his actions. And those supporters are real. And he's dropped, so to speak, the baton has dropped because he's now chained to a wall. So others have come and picked up that baton with the same spirit, the same encouragement, the same joy, and they're moving forward. And he's writing back saying, I like it. I hear about it. It's good. But also some are selfish opportunists. Verse 15, he talks about some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Verse 17, those people proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in prison. The word rivalry means contention. You put that word with envy, and we learn that some people consider the, who consider themselves saints were glad that Paul had been caught they look to gain by this. The competitor is out of the way. Probably saying something like, he's disqualified himself. He's not good anymore. He's out of the picture. Now it's time for me to get the book deal. Now it's time for people to notice me. Look at me. I'm the next up-and-comer evangelist. Time for them to get the followers that Paul was most likely, they thought, going to lose by being stuck in jail. They may have thought that Paul never deserved the credit anyway. All that fame that Paul, the murderer, the the horrible person that he was, he's getting all this fame just because he's got this backstory. And so now he's caught, and now they're thinking, now rightfully what is mine I can go and achieve because people aren't always going to be asking me when I come to a city, do you know Paul? Do you know Paul? Do you know Paul? Do you know Paul? He's out of the way now. Now they can just focus on my message and what I'm bringing. You hear the selfishness, the contention, bringing the same message, but just doing it with a motive that's selfish. Paul's writing back saying, I'm aware of them. 
I know what's going on. Paul, we see in verse 18 and 19, celebrates the good. He celebrates the win. Paul doesn't care who gets the fame. He, well, he cares who gets the fame. He doesn't care who's getting the notoriety of who's talking about the one who's famous. He doesn't care who gets the book deal as long as the book is about Jesus. He says, after all this, we're still united. We're united to Christ. We're united for the gospel with each other. And it's because of this unity to Christ, Paul doesn't waver. He doesn't seek his own fame. And then he reminds, this is all kind of catching up. This is remind, then he reminds the people of his mission, his aim, and what pleases him the most. Verse 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation, my hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. If I were to die, that'd be gain. I would win. <laughs> they kill me, I win. For me to live is Christ. We see the ultimate mission report here. The ultimate report from a missionary writing back saying, okay, here's the update. Here's what's going on. Here's who's causing me trouble. Who's, here's who's been supporting me. And here's how we're advancing. We're still going. We're still working. It's still all good. Thank you, Philippians. Thank you for all your support. Here's what's happening. And you kind of almost would think there's kind of a pause for applaud here. Applause. A pause for applause. Like, hallelujah, it's still working. We were concerned and we're hearing this. Paul doesn't seem the least bit discouraged. The New Testament church was on the move because Paul and these New Testament believers, these Philippians, kept pressing forward with the same goal. We're united to Christ. We're united with the gospel. And we're going to avoid the traps that are in front of us that are going to bog us down and keep us from doing what God asks us to do, wants us to do. So what are those traps? And do we tend to fall into those? Not just individually, but as a church maybe, as a society, as a Christian culture, do we fall into these traps? Let's look at these six traps that the enemy uses to prevent God's kingdom from advancing. So if you're taking notes, you can write these six down. These are the six things we're probably going to talk about at our community group this week. So if you go to group, you can already start thinking um, about these six traps. Trap number one that we see Paul avoid is the trap of a private faith. Oh, so easy to think that our faith should just be about us. He writes, I want you to know, brothers, I want you to know. Like, I'm writing because I've got a story that's not supposed to be kept with me. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. He writes that it has become known. 
I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. How does something like his faith and what he's there for become known? Like, if you got arrested for saying and preaching Jesus, don't you think it would be safer to keep it private? Once you get in jail, you get chained up. Somebody, what you in here for? Murder. I mean, wouldn't it like get some street cred, right? Like, I'm in here for stuff. I mean, he could have said, here's what he used to be. No, his faith, he's like, okay, I'm in here for Christ. It's become known to everybody. Now, if being saved, being rescued by God, and being a Christ follower is about coming to church, sitting on our pews or in our chairs, and holding it in, sitting quietly, wiping our eyes, feeling moved by the songs or the sermon, and then just holding it in and going home and trying to do better that week. Is that all there is? Do you think God sent his son to die for you, for me, to save us, to redeem us, to capture us, to hold us forever, to sustain us, just so you can keep it private? We know this isn't God's mission because he, as he was ascending to the Father, he gives the instructions, go, make disciples. And as you go, I'm with you everywhere. I own it all. So go, get public with your faith. Paul's faith was not private. He he avoided the trap of, being quiet, and we see that it's, he's writing this letter back, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that some, some are even coming to Christ because of this, and then we also see what a public faith does, and verse 14 says, and most of the brothers, most of the followers, most of the other people who probably wanted to keep their faith private, verse 14, they are becoming more confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What if Paul kept it private? You have prison guards and prisoners that would not know the gospel. You would have the Philippians that wouldn't know what's going on, and they could get sort of scared, and they can become private and kind of keep everything hush-hush. And then also you wouldn't have brothers and sisters inspired to go forth. We are called to have a public faith and to avoid the trap of keeping it private. Satan wants you to think that you have no story or you got to polish it up real good or you got to make it sound good or maybe like these other people, you've got to have a testimony like Pastor Jason or Paul or Daniel or Dana. You got to have some kind of story like that. No, that's a trap. Satan just wants you to keep it private. And he'll convince you, however he can, to keep it private. So my question is, how are you avoiding the trap of a private faith? Who can you this week, just to start sharing what it means to be a Christian with? Start with your family. Start with your kids. Start with your brothers and sisters. There's another trap that Paul avoids. And secondly, we see... There's the trap of fearing the worst. The trap of fearing the worst versus resting in God's sovereign work. 
and verse 14, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We get inspired by people who take risk. We get inspired by those who go hard with joy for the cause, no matter what the circumstances are or what could happen. Paul's risk cost him. When Paul entered places, instead of fearing for the worst, he took the risk. Think about when Paul got himself arrested. What could be going through your mind? It would have been easier for Paul to immediately start thinking, I wonder what kind of beatings I'm going to get. I wonder what kind of food they have. Am I going to get any food? Are they going to hang me upside down? Am I going to have anybody around me? Is it isolation? Am I going to be camped out? You can can just imagine all the things that would be going through your mind. Like I've heard about those who've been arrested and put into a Roman prison, into the Praetorium area. And, and And just you can see how the fear of what you don't know can cripple you. It's a trap of the enemy to get you to be caught up and trapped, fearing the worst. We don't see that Paul did that. Paul rested in the sovereign work of God. He uses language here, emphasizing that God's the one that even placed him in the jail. The trap of fearing the worst. When Paul got arrested, He could have been thinking all the things that weren't going to get to happen now. I'm not going to get to go to Northern Europe now. These churches aren't going to get planted. The church in Philippi, they're going to be scared for me. They're going to crumble. These people are going to crumble. They need me out there. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, no. You don't see any of that here. You ever been around people like that, that fear the worst? Something happens and all of a sudden they just start thinking of all the negative that could happen. I'm not talking about those who are put into our lives to help us calculate the risk. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those that even after you calculate the risk, they only see the worst. I wanna, I'm reminded when I read of this and think about this about a friend of mine named Jerry who I went on three mission trips with Jerry. The first one I went on was to Nepal and his he has a. He started a mission. Um, he started a ministry where he he takes Christians and equips them and helps them go and, and provides opportunities for them to go to the 1040 window, which is basically the places on the globe that don't want the Christian gospel to come, and they're hostile to it. They have rules forbidding it, and so. At this, the first time we went to Nepal, at that time, the Miles rebels were controlling the country, and there was a, was a bit of a civil war. It wasn't really a civil war because the Miles rebels were in charge, and, and uh, just bad things were happening. And this was my first time to go somewhere other than Canada and Mexico on a mission trip, and, and we're going in. And I finally just had the courage to, on, on our second day there, uh, Jerry, what, just to ask him, Jerry, what would happen? I mean, you go to all these places. You go to Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and uh, Somalia, and you're doing this work. I mean, what would happen if somebody died? And Jerry has this goofy grin, and he just look at me and say, well, I guess we need to name the fundraising banquet after somebody. 
I mean, he just doesn't think about like, okay, we're going to our death here. He just didn't come to his mind. And I thought, how could he be so crass? But that's what gave him the boldness to not even think about the worst. In fact, in his mind, he's thinking, well, I'm surely someday one of us will die. Doesn't mean we don't go. I saw it even more so a year later. We went to Iran, and at that time, uh, in Iran, they in Tehran, the Tehran airport, uh, all the domestic flights and all the international flights came in together. And so we were coming in uh, from Amsterdam, and we were landing. And, and this is much scarier to me than Nepal. And Nepal's got a lot of tourists, a lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners. I'm thinking, okay, it'd be all right. This is Iran, and so I'm, but I don't know. I've never been there. Jerry's been there a couple times, and. And uh, actually, no, Jerry hadn't been there. I've been to Iraq many times, and so this is his first time in Iran. And, but I'm oozing from the confidence that he's oozing with, right? Like, uh, as long as our leader's okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And, and uh, we get off the flight, and uh, we're walking in, and I'm realizing I'm wearing my khaki cargo pants, which missionary people wear, and uh, my loose shirt that I can keep all my stuff in, and and uh, it's, but it's kind of dark green, and so, but I'm realizing almost everyone's wearing dark clothing, like it's black and gray, and like it's dark everywhere, and they split us up, and we're in these different lines on, intentionally, and I look over at Jerry way over there, and there's thousands of people, and I'm now scared, just admit it. I look over at Jerry in the sea of black, and there is our leader with a red Hawaiian shirt and sandals. He's got blue jeans on, but he's got sandals. And he's looking over at us with his big grin, you know, just waving. Not even thinking that something terrifying or horrible could happen. Knowing it might, knowing it probably would. But he wasn't paralyzed and didn't fall into the trap of fearing the worst. How many times have... Have you been prevented to do what God's wanted you to do because you're fearing the worst instead of resting in the sovereign hand of God? This has paralyzed me in my life as a dad, as a husband, not knowing where my wife is, not knowing where my kids are. Are they okay? What's going on? I get so paralyzed that I am missing opportunities to share the gospel. Paul is not falling for the trap of fearing for the worst. Got to get going, sorry. A third trap here is allowing circumstances to create enemies. The trap of creating enemies instead of opportunities. This text, verse 13 through 17, so humble me. Really, let's skip on down to verse 15. Some are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul finds himself in a very tight spot. It'd be easy and be very natural for Paul to begin making a hit list. Oh, I'm keeping track of you. You're causing me trouble. You're being divisive. You're, you're tearing up the church. You're doing this for selfish gain. And yeah, you're getting famous in public now, but I'm coming. I'm coming for you. Be easy for Paul in his chains 
to think right now I'm being held back. I can't fight back, but I'm going to speak and bark and roar loudly at all of you by name. When we get like that, sometimes we can be so consumed what we can't control that we create these enemies that we'll never have contact with. Let me ask you, does that happen to you on social media with politics? You get mad at people on the TV that you're never going to have a meeting with. What's it doing to you? Is it freeing? Let me ask you this. Is it propelling you to pro promote the hope of the gospel or you just keep making these bitter jabs? How does that help? Paul is chained up but fueled inside, and instead of looking at the enemies that he could be creating, he's looking at opportunity. He's in a Roman prison. The very people that killed his Savior. It's time to debate, right? It's time to argue. It's time to, to get to task with them. No. He shares the love of Christ with them. He doesn't create enemies. He's looking at this as opportunity to share his faith. He, you can almost hear him screaming out here, this is my opportunity. This is what I get to do here. This is what God had planned. I'm put here for Christ. Let's go. Good news. Let's, this is not what I planned, but this is what I'm doing. You're going to have setbacks in your life. There's going to be people pressing down on you some bad things, some bad news. You feel enslaved by them, pressed in on them, and it's your temptation or the trap's going to be Make a list. Get a posse together. And God says, no. Uh -uh. They're pressing in on you because that's the people that you need to show the love of Christ to. Not enemies, opportunities. We see another trap that he avoids. The trap of seeking his own kingdom. This is so hard. The trap of seeking our own kingdom versus gazing at God's kingdom. Verse 16 through 17, he talks about that here in this text. I am in my chains for Christ. They know it. I'm promoting him. I'm not seeking my own kingdom. I'm not going to try to fight them. It's a dangerous trap to make this Christian life about your own personal kingdom. This has tragically affected how we do politics, how we handle our wealth, our time. It's about me. It's about us. Don't fall for the trap. Paul was, his ministry, his goals were fixed on Christ. His little kingdom didn't matter to him. Look with me in verse 16 through 18. In verse 18 he says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. Which leads to the next trap that he avoids. The trap of self-pity. The trap of self-pity versus the trap of selfless surrender. This is a tough one. While some may fall for the trap of selfish leadership, promoting themselves, pushing themselves, gaining Advancing on somebody else's hardships, others fall into defeatism, self-pity. 
so much of what we see happening today in the news, the back and forth, is really a contest of who's offended the most. You ever thought about it? You go on, you turn your TV on right after church, you're going to see a debate on the football field. Who's more offended? And I'm not here to say who should be offended, not offended. I'm just saying it just seems to be that whether it's somebody in leadership or somebody else, there's this ping pong going back and forth of I'm offended, I'm offended, I'm offended. And Paul, who has every right to be offended, Christians all over the world have every right to be offended, that's when we're supposed to not take the bait and not give in to self-pity. Christians must lead the way in pushing off the temptation to pity themselves, believers. We must hold to the reality that self-pity is pride in disguise. Self-pity says, I deserve better. Self-pity says, I don't deserve that. I deserve better. Paul didn't say any of that here. I love it. He avoids the trap of self-pity, thinking more highly of himself. Sometimes self-pity can so paralyze us that it keeps us from advancing and leading the way that we should lead. Let me ask you this. Practically speaking, how many of you have ever followed somebody that's caught up in self-pity? Is that attractive? Somebody that's always like, Eeyore, poor me. I'm just, you know, this is, you know, I deserve better. I can't believe this is happening. Man, this stinks. Good luck with that. Unappealing. Whatever story it is that you're selling, I don't want it because it's not helping you right now. Paul is stuck. He's in chains. And when he's tempted to have self-pity, no self-pity here. Whether I live, it's for Christ. Whether I die, that's gain. It's all good. There's opportunities here. There's people hearing the message here. You people are getting encouraged over here because of what's happening to me here. It's win, 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 win. He doesn't take the bait or the trap of self-pity. I think one thing that Paul was convinced of that I think we all need to remind ourselves and we need to do it in our community groups, we need to do it in our songs is this. And Dana and Daniel sang it with the song, God is Sovereign Over Us. God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a setback. It's purposeful. Get that into your prayer life. God, I don't feel like this is good news. Well, I'm not wasting it. It's good news because it's making you better or you're going to be able to use an opportunity over here. God never wastes a hurt no matter what you're going through, no matter what's happened. He's in it. Don't fall for the trap of self-pity. The last, one way we avoid that is we just give in to selfless surrender to him. We say to God, here I am, use me. The sixth trap is this. The trap of pursuing comfort in our lives. 
Pursuing comfort versus the obedient calling of God. Paul says, verse 20, it is my, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Let me pause. Think about that. Paul does not write, I'm planning out my life. I've met with my financial advisors. Here's what my eager and my hope for my portfolio is going to look like. If I do this, 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 and this, my eagerness and my hope for my retirement and where I can go and what I can do and all this stuff. No. That's not bad to plan. But is your hope and your comfort in trying to plan for your comfort? Because you can't control all that. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paraphrase, it's my eager hope and expectation that I will be a man, an example for the church that hopes in one holy God. Not the man and the example that can cause other people to say, I want to be as wealthy as him. I have one eager expectation hope to be a man of courage for the gospel. That's the hero right there. He avoids the trap by saying, no matter what it costs me, I'm praying for the courage to do whatever it takes to honor my Savior, to make him famous. Let me ask you this. We, we all pursue comfort in some way. I mean, when we wake up and we go after our coffee, or if you snooze, either one, you're pursuing your comfort, right? I need coffee. Get me going. I need to get comfortable with this day. I need snooze. I want to stay comfortable where I am. We are all pursuing our comfort. It's not that we're not supposed to be pursuing what's good for us. But the trap is pursuing it at all cost. What do you pursue at all cost? The last thing that Satan wants is for followers of Jesus Christ that love the message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, more than worldly comforts. If he can keep us comfortable, keep us happy, Keep everybody eating good, sleeping well, no suffering. If he can keep all that like little protected in a bubble, happy, will never grow, and the kingdom will never advance. And he knows it. Paul knows this, and here's the thing. Unfortunately, the gospel does not advance through comfort. I must have read this passage of Scripture Hundreds of times in my life. I love it. I love it. And the more I read it and meditate on this story and the events of this word and this letter back to the Philippians, I always see so clearly transparency. Paul is just sharing so much. His faith is public and the gospel is advancing. I see a people's growing joy 
and the sovereign work of God. Their rest is in him. They're not fearing the worst. And because of that, the gospel is advancing. I read this and I'm thinking and I'm reminded of circumstances that are creating opportunities versus enemies. And because of that, the gospel is advancing. I see Paul and people gazing on the, on the kingdom of God above everything else instead of his own kingdom and the gospel's advancing. I see a people, Paul especially, selflessly surrendering to God's causes instead of giving in to self-pity, the gospel advancing. And then we see the obedience. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're going to spend more time on that verse and what follows next week. Paul reminds us that's in Christ alone is our hope, our joy, not in comfort, not in building a hit list, not in self-pity. It's in him. What do you consider your gain in life today? Your first house? I could just get married, if I could just get perfect kids, if I could just get this house, or if I can get that job, or if I can get this circumstance in line, if I could just kind of work all this stuff out, if I could not have this oppressive boss or coach or teacher, then everything will line up right. When has that ever advanced the kingdom? Paul believed Jesus' words. In this world, you will suffer, but have hope. I have overcome the world. Go and tell people that story. Let's pray. Paul is sending this letter to his friends, and he's saying, unite with me. As we read it today, as a pastor with my friends here and in prayer, I'm praying that we would unite together with a public faith, not a private one. That we would not fear the worst, but we'd rest in God's sovereign work. And that we would constantly be seeking opportunities to share the gospel instead of a growing list of people we don't want to talk to that we would fix our eyes on God's kingdom instead of our own little kingdoms and that we would surrender our rights if we need be and that we'd fight against self-pity and that we would pursue the obedience of God over worldly comforts. As you pray, as you think about these things, I want you to consider is Christ worth it? Is he worth it? Consider what traps you tend to fall in. And then I want you to join when you're ready in the wonderful hope that in Christ alone, all our hope, all of our strength, all of our joy, all of our pleasure can be found. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your treasure and as your pleasure, don't leave here today without talking to me or talking to somebody how you can know Jesus in that way. For those who know Jesus that way, let's admit 
that we're tired of falling in the traps and let's sing to him that he alone is our strength. God, help us, strengthen us, encourage us and inspire us with the, the letter we see in Philippians. Show us now the traps to avoid and the hope to put in you.